We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. We're continuing our exploration of Fihi Ma Fihi by Rumi. And in the um, the Arbury online PDF edition, we are on page 46. Discourse number 6 at the bottom of page 46, starting with the paragraph that says, A fool came. All right. A fool came and sat in the seat above one of the great saints. What difference does it make to the saints whether such a person is above or below the lamp? If the lamp wants to be on high, it does not desire that for its own sake. Its purpose is for the benefit of others, so that they can enjoy their share of the light. Wherever the lamp may be, whether below or above, it is still the lamp of the eternal sun. If the saint seeks worldly rank and office, it is for this purpose. They desire to snare those worldlings who do not have the vision to see their true elevation with the trap of worldly rank. Through this, they may find their way to the high, higher wor- worlds and fall into the trap of divine grace. Okay, so what are we talking about here? I guess I'm the only person to, <laughs> to answer that question. No, so, so this is um, talking about the difference between adab versus training. Okay. So in matters of adab, if, you know, if you're in the presence of, of the sheikh, you should sit in a particular way, right? You should sit, if it's possible, you should, f- should sit physically below, mm-hmm. lower. Um, you should definitely never extend your legs out so your feet are facing the sheikh, right? These are all matters of adab, of manners with the sheikh. But from the sheikh's perspective, the sheikh doesn't care, right? Because those are also, uh, from an adab perspective, that is the person sitting in those ways uh, expressing respect, to, to, to the sheikh. And an example of that, there's a famous story of uh, Abu Hanifa coming to a man who, um, who is regarded as a big scholar. And Abu Hanifa sits with his legs folded to give the honor to, to the, the sheikh. I mean, to really make the point, you shouldn't even get up without telling the sheikh, right? You know, like, I'm going to get up to get a glass of water. Is that okay? Like, you shouldn't even leave without getting permission. And you should definitely not turn your back to the teacher, right? But so Abu Hanifa sits with his legs folded, and then as he listens to the sheikh, Abu Hanifa realizes this guy's an idiot. And so he stretches out his legs. Right? Mm. And what's funny <laughs> is that this elder, I was in a masjid, and this elder man was giving that exact lesson, and there was a kid sitting in the front with his legs folded, and as soon as the elder man mentioned Abu Hanifa stretching his legs, this kid stretched his legs. <laughs> To the elder man. And then I told the kid about it later. I mean, the kid was, was 20. I'm calling yeah. him a kid. Um, he, the kid didn't even realize he did that. Oh, wow. <laughs> He's like, I was just uncomfortable the way I was sitting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's the adab aspect of it. Uh, but it's different if that's what the sheikh is expecting to receive. Because mm. if he is requiring you to treat him according to his status, that could be a sign that the person is not really a sheikh. Right? Uh, so, a fool came and sat in a seat above one of the great saints. What difference does it make to the saint whether the, such a person is above or below the lamp, right? Uh, <clears throat> so, if the sheikh actually wants to be higher, if the sheikh wants to be higher, it'll be for training the student, right? So, like, sometimes, you know, college students or high school students will ask me, what should they, how should they identify me? If they're my academic students, then I tell them professor such and such. But like uh, as cha- on the chaplain side, I say I don't care, right? You can call me Muzaffar, Professor Muzaffar, Chaplain Muzaffar Omar, right? If they're high schoolers, 
I'll tell them to call me Ustaz, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because high schoolers, uh, uh, in my opinion, need to be a little bit more trained in manners, mm-hmm. right? And so that's what's going on here. So the fool, he's called a fool because if you're, if you're sitting uh, improperly, people will look at you like you're uncouth. And this, I mean, we have this in many of our, of our cultures too, right? Like, you know, um, I remember I was at a dinner party and, uh, you know, it's a bunch of Desi uncles where I was sitting and there was one big sheikh type figure who was like the one Arab in the room. So obviously he was a scholar for, for the Desis, right? And, Kiss and, the ring. Yeah, exactly. And so this one Desi physician was asking the scholar a question, which uh, I thought was a very basic question. And so I answered it. And this Desi uncle looked at me and he said forcefully, this young man thinks he knows the answer, right? And it's because I spoke out of line for the adab of that, uh, that environment. It was funny when the scholar repeated everything that I said, right? <laughs> but what I did was from the adab of the setting was still wrong, mm. right? And so, so, yeah, the lamp doesn't care. But if the lamp is seeking to train the student, then the lamp will, um, will basically use worldly methods to help train the student. What do you think the balance is between, like... Uh, Adab and then like this sort of, uh, I don't want to like, I'm afraid to use the word cultish, but like, uh, yeah, this sort of over exaggerated reverence people have, right, for their teachers. And like, uh, they're free from critique, they're mm-hmm. free from like, you know, sometimes I feel like you can't. Some of my friends, like when they, they're like, oh, this scholar said this, like, yeah. that person can't even be questioned, uh-huh. right? And I'm like, well, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. I mean, if the sheikh is demanding it from everyone, then that seems problematic, right? Um, if the sheikh, if the student is demanding it, like if the student is demanding you to treat the sheikh with respect, um, that may not be the sheikh speaking. It may be the student speaking. I mean, uh, a friend of mine um, gave me a really wonderful analogy that the the murid of the sheikh is the patient in the hospital, right? Mm-hmm. Spiritually ill. So we have to be very careful about looking at the murid as representative of the sheikh. Because um, the sheikh would, uh, um, in this tradition, will accept everyone. So you're going to have some people who are super upright right from the start. You have people who've gone through serious training in our upright. And then you have some people who are right at the beginning. They're uncouth. They're... Um, they're arrogant, they're hypocritical, because that's where they're starting, right? And so you're going to have, with, with sheikhs, you do often see that cultish uh, behavior. And often it's not the sheikh who does it, but the sheikh does have some degree of responsibility to try to mitigate it if the sheikh is aware. So you're going to have some people who just demand everyone treats the sheikh with, you know, the highest esteem possible, because that's who the sheikh is to this person, Right? And it's as though this person feels like they are being attacked if the sheikh is being treated at a level higher than the highest, right? And then you're often going to find, I've seen this with so many charismatic leaders, you're going to find a circle of people around the sheikh who will almost like imprison the sheikh. And you can't even get to him without getting through these people. And, I mean, I've seen that with, with Dr. Israr. I've seen that with Imam W.D. Um, you'll have those circles of people. Uh, but, I mean, I don't know if there's like a balance or something, but the basic test is if you can make it through to the, she- uh, the sheikh, what is the sheikh like? Mm-hmm. You know, 
you have something similar with uh, Habib Omar bin Hafiz. I had a, a, a friend, you know, who went to study, and he was talking about how many hoops you have to go through to, uh, to be able to see uh, Habib Omar. And I asked, well, what is Habib Omar like um, when you meet him? He goes, he's actually just a really friendly guy, right? But the people around uh, are often gatekeepers more than they should be, mm-hmm. right? But the key point being that you can't really look at them as representative. Um, uh, I mean, this is a debate I've had with some people. Like, some people are of the opinion that the, sh- uh, the teacher should, um, <coughs> um, the teacher has some degree of responsibility, but I don't know how much control the teacher has. Right, um, you can look at the people who seem to be the closest to the teacher to see what they're like. Uh, they would hopefully be better, but you know, um, some of I've talked to some students of some sheikhs, you know, who just keep repeating the same thing for every lesson, and they're like trying to teach me stuff. And I'm like, okay, you obviously don't know anything, right? But they don't know any better. Yeah. So yeah, so so the sheikh is. Uh, as much as is, it is in the sheikh's capacity, is nurturing each student. Um, but obviously, the, the more the distances between teacher and student physically, yeah. as well as in time, um, the less specific the teacher's training is going to be. And so think of someone like Sheikh Nuhamim Keller, who has thousands of students throughout the world, right? Um, uh, for some, he can only give very, very general instruction because they're just so far away. If you can get one-on-one um, training, then that's, that's super outstanding. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because then you actually have the sohba, you have the companionship of the person with you. So. All right. Uh, let's continue in the same way. In this same way, the Prophet Muhammad did not conquer Mecca and the surrounding lands because he was in need of them. He conquered in order to give life and grant might to all people. This hand is accustomed to give. It is not accustomed to take. The saints beguile people in order to bestow gifts on them, not to take anything away. So this is another principle, and this is a recurring theme throughout the text, that the saint, the wali, is someone whose disposition is to give, 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 not yeah. to take, right? And, and so I think uh, the example of the prophet, peace be upon him, is pretty straightforward. Yeah. From a worldly perspective, it looks like he's conquering and establishing his rule. Uh, but from a dean, from a religious or an afterlife or an unseen perspective, no. He is t- taking over so as to free the people, mm-hmm. right? What's fascinating, and this is a point a student in a different class brought up, if you look at all the religions of the world, how many of those religions are still located continuously in the place where they began? Christianity is not. Yeah. I mean, you have a small, tiny presence of Christianity in Nazareth, right? Judaism isn't. Judaism came back right, yeah. to, to, to Jerusalem. Islam is still in Mecca, right? And that in itself is, is a very, very deep, fascinating point, right? Yeah. That it hasn't left, yeah. you know, 1,400 that is years later. Yeah. Because even, like... Even with Christianity, the center, I guess with Islam, the center of power changes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. But Mecca and Medina always hold this special yeah. uh, status. Yeah, and Hajj is right? still there, yeah. But like, with, I guess with the church, like it moves to Rome, it moves to Constantinople. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Because mm-hmm. like, I, I was in Istanbul, and then I, I went to the Hagia Sophia, and it, uh-huh. it was one of the most marvelous like oh, totally places I've been to. And, yeah. Like, you could feel the history. Yeah. But, like, it's also connected to empire. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, 
Uh-huh. Like it was, it was, it's a great church, but it's also built by Justinian. Mm-hmm. Like, and you can't like separate those uh-huh. things. You know, you see the emperors, you see like, uh-huh. it's very, that's interesting. Yeah. And so, so yeah. And uh, I guess, oh, sorry. The point I was making, yeah. <laughs> I think slow, uh, <laughs> is maybe that's the, maybe that was beneficial that the center of power left mm-hmm. the penin- the Arabian Peninsula, meaning that like, Mecca and Medina are purely sort of religious. Yeah. And they're like, there's no, you're not boggled down with the rest of history. Like, mm-hmm. there weren't sultans who built their things mm-hmm. there. And like, it's literally th- that the political realm sort of left. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can say the political realm is definitely present in the physical building. Yeah. Uh, but it's also probably fair to say that no matter what shape the physical building is, it probably doesn't seem to affect the ibadah. Yeah. Right. Except in determining how many people are allowed in and such, right? Because you go to you go to Masjid Haram in Mecca, and you'll have Bab uh, Bab Abdulaziz and such, right? Mm-hmm. Which it's fair to assume are named after kings. Yeah. Um, um, but nevertheless, if you take that whole Masjid down, leave the Kaaba, everyone's still going to be praying the same way, right. right? You know, and so yeah, even the imperial history does not have as much of a of a hold. Yeah. And it didn't turn into a museum, as did the Hagia Sophia. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, so these are neat things. But the, 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 the overall point I'm making is perhaps one of the reasons that Islam stayed in Mecca is this default disposition of giving. Mm. Right. As opposed to taking. Because when we think of kings and empires, the idea is taking. Right. Taking and then establishing your own greatness. Because, I mean, what, what relic is there about the Prophet, peace be upon him, except the acts of worship, right? Yeah. I, mean, I mean, there's all kinds of news stories of, you know, the, the Saudis destroying all these sites and such, and that is its own very serious conversation. But if all those sites get destroyed, that is still not going to affect Ibadah. Yeah. Right? Or the, or the greater legacy yeah. of the Prophets. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so... So yeah, and so this is the disposition of the saint, the, of the wali. It's to give and give and give and give. The last sentence is fascinating. The saints beguile people in order to bestow gifts on them, not to take anything away. This is one thing you find. These are not, this is anything, not anything that I have witnessed, at least as far as I know consciously. You'll have stories of people who their sheikh has done something miraculous. I mean, I've heard all kinds of stories, like this one sheikh, he, he lifted this guy up to, into the sky. Like, he just made him go flat yeah, in the air, yeah. right? Yeah. And these are narrated to me, like, separated by one or two degrees. Yeah. And, and, and so I don't have a problem believing those things are possible, having not witnessed those things. I've witnessed other things that seem to be uh, beyond explanation. But the point being that the saints may also do something like that uh, to make it so that the student is capable of receiving. Is it a joke I was going to make, but I won't? Because it's being recorded. <laughs> okay. uh, but uh, that reminds me of um, something Sheikh uh, Akram Nadwi said. Mm-hmm. Uh, Umar shared it. But it was a very short clip, but he was talking about those sort of miracles. Mm-hmm. And he said something that kind of like, I felt like it resonated with me a lot. Uh-huh. And it really touched me. But he was saying like, you know, if you see someone perform a miracle, uh, and he was like, for example, if you see someone flying through the air, or like, you know, walk, like being in the, you know, walking through water or something uh-huh. like that. Uh, 
he was like, you know, if you say subhanallah, you're closer to Allah than the person flying. Because oh, cool. he said, you're, you saying subhanallah is your action. Cool. But the person flying, that's Allah's action. That's pretty awesome. And Mashallah. he said, Allah doesn't want his own actions. He wants your action. That's nice. So cool. he says, if you see a miracle and you say subhanallah, you're closer to God because God wants what you can do, not what he's capable of. Mashallah. I think I, I told you before. You may have, I don't remember, but that's oh, pretty Yeah, good. I can, I'll send you the, uh, the little clip. It was re- yeah. I mean, he says it much more eloquently yeah, so than I do. But, good. Uh, yeah. Was, okay, so let's continue. When someone lays a trap. <clears throat> when someone lays a trap and catches little birds to eat and sell, this is called cunning. <laughs> but if a king lays a trap to capture an untutored and worthless hawk, having no knowledge of its own true nature, to train it, to train <clears throat> to his own forearm so that it may become ennobled. This is not called cunning. Though to outward appearance it is cunning, yet it is known to be <clears throat> very acme of caring and generosity, restoring the dead to life, converting the base stone into a ruby, and far more than that. If the hawk knew for what reason the king wanted to capture it, it would not require any bait. It would search for the trap with soul and heart and would fly to the king's hand. Okay, so <clears throat> uh, paralleling this with the prophet, peace be upon him, conquering Makkah, which that is being paralleled with, with the sheikh who doesn't really care about the students sitting above or below. So the recurring theme in all of these is whether we speak about the prophet, peace be upon him, or the sheikh, the goal is to form the student. Okay, to nurture and to form and to work to transform the student yeah. okay, from, from like this raw material into something very, very refined in terms of behavior and spirituality. And so, but if you look from the outside in, it may look like an act of domination. Again, the Prophet, peace upon him, conquering Makkah, looking from the outside in looks completely like an act of domination because not only is he taking over, he's destroying all the idols. Yeah. Right? Um, and so it looks completely like an act of, of, of domination. So the example here is that if you're catching a bird to eat and sell, that's cunning in figuring out how to do it. Um, but if in the case of the Ottomans, you are taking all these kids as Janissaries. I mean, there's the critical view of Janissaries or the polemical view of Janissaries and the apologetic view. So the apologetic view is that these are people who, who would not have amounted to anything socially, and now they've been trained to take on a very, very high status in the ministry, right? And so if, if you are luring a student in, okay, um, and the student doesn't even realize it, um, you're doing it for the sake of the student. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, a simple example of this is that if you look at houses of worship, and masjids are becoming like this, but churches especially, when you don't have too many young people who are coming to your church, what do you do? You set up like a basketball court to try to get them to come. And you'll even find churches that will have a coffee shop now. Yeah. Why? To get people to come to, to the house of worship. And so it's getting more and more common where you'll have a mosque and then connected to it will be a gym. Yeah. With the same point. Okay, how do we get these people to come? That's kind of the same point here. Right? How do you lure them in? Yeah. What happens, the mistake that happens is that in the masjid, they forget the point of the masjid. Right? Uh, they're doing it to get the kids you know, off the streets, which is good. Right? But it doesn't need to be connected to a masjid for that. The goal of the masjid is to fill up the lines with people who are praying. That's the fundamental goal, right? And so then there are other strategies to to do that, but nobody's better than the TJs for for all that. And so 
if the hawk knew for what reason the king wanted to capture it, it would not require any bait. Now, this is a very, very interesting point because it runs almost in contrast to what we find in the very, very first lesson. In the very first lesson, you have the prophet, peace be upon him, who's taken all these people prisoner. And they're all crying, saying, we're going to get executed. And the prophet smiles. And then they look, he's even smiling because he's excited about the fact he's going to execute us. He's no different than what everyone else is. And the prophet, peace be upon him, basically is saying, no, I'm smiling because this is peculiar. Here I am trying to take you into paradise, and you're trying as hard as you can to stay out. Right? And so you're going to have some people like that who don't want it. But if someone appreciates that, okay, I have a certain level of self-worth, and this person is willing to mentor me, this person will absolutely go for it without needing to be lured in. Okay, and so the hawk, it says, it would search for the trap with soul and heart and would fly to the king's hand. Okay. And so in our era, uh, I think you also have this thing where people don't realize what they're worth. And it's almost like you have to train them uh, to help figure out what they're worth so then they can appreciate you know, the benefit. You know, I've been hearing that a lot like lately. Yeah. And I've been trying to think of like, because I was thinking about this, like what does it mean to like actually love yourself? Like, mm. I don't even know how to like express yeah. that like what mm -hmm. does that mean mm -hmm. you know and like uh it's almost an uncomfortable topic to talk about yeah because like, it sounds like it's something egocentric yeah right? mm -hmm. and like it's like what do you mean like i don't know it's and i it's easy for me to tell other people you should love yourself yeah. right like it's easy to see the value in them but yeah. like someone told me that the other day and i was like well what, like what do you what yeah. like i it felt like mm -hmm. awkward and like yeah, and uh, a way to think about this is that um, uh, wouldn't someone want to go to the top level of paradise, right? Uh, selflessness does not apply to the afterlife in the sense that on the Day of Judgment, we know, like one thing, people are going to be so terrified or awestruck that a pregnant woman is going to give birth, going to just unload her child, yeah. and she's not going to care because she's so full of awe and terror as the Day of Judgment is beginning. And another is that when you're walking on the bridge, the sirats, across to the other side, hoping to reach paradise on the other side, you know, it's literally going to be everyone for themselves. And again, you're not going to care about your kid. And so uh, in a dunya perspective, that sounds like pure narcissism. In an akhira perspective, no, that is the actual reality. That at the end of the day, no matter how much you're willing to give of someone else in dunya, especially your child, um, and in older cultures, especially your parents, um, uh, deep down inside, there's nothing more important to you than you. Um, but in dunya, part of the idea of loving yourself is, you know, allowing yourself to heal. It's, uh, it's understanding that there are many aspects of yourself where you can be in better shape, internally at the very least. Right? You know, we call this self-care. I think if you look at it from the perspective of self-care, it's easier to understand. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, like all the trauma that a person looks, uh, gets, gets hit with by watching Facebook and looking at the disaster porn on Facebook. Yeah. You know, like with what's happening in Syria right now. You're causing trauma to yourself. Yeah. And, and it is literally a form of violence against yourself. And so self-love would be to figure out how to minimize that or minimize the effects of that by way of self-care or turning things off and such. Mm -hmm. As opposed to uh, megalomania, 
I think when we hear love yourself, we think of megalomania and something egocentric. That's not what we're talking about. Like a Donald Trump. Yeah, yeah, like certain people who've been elected to a certain status, you know. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's continue. People only listen. People only listen to the outward significance of saints' words. They say, we heard plenty of this. Our hearts are stuffed full of words of this kind. God says, God forbid that you should be full of them. You are full of your own whisperings and vain conceits. You are full of illusion and greed. Nay, you are full of cursing. Uh, you want to try to explain this one? Yeah, well, no. Uh, <laughs> so, hmm. You feel like you're under pressure? Yeah. Because <laughs> the recording Because the recording, guys. <laughs> don't judge me. Uh, so people, I mean, I guess it seems straightforward. People are only uh, sort of they're not they're only looking at like the practical applications mm-hmm. or the external realities of whatever's so, being said like. so yeah and so that's definitely the first part right people don't listen to the outward significance and and so think about it this way when the saint is t- when the teacher is teaching the student something there's automatically two things that are taking pr- uh, place right in each of those words one is what is the instruction the saint is giving to the student what is the teaching but the simple fact that, this, that the teacher is investing in the student is actually far more important, mm-hmm. right? Because uh, basically, basically the teacher is saying, you are worth my time, right? But then you have some students <coughs> who say, who because they don't appreciate that part, you know, they find themselves saying, yeah, we have already heard all this, you know. What more can you teach us? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like, you know, when you go to Juma. And you've already heard everything. Yeah. And so you start zoning out. Okay, so if Juma is a divinely ordained prescription, and the normal Juma would just be that one paragraph, you know, praise of Allah, yeah. blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon reminder of the day of judgment. If that's what you were to hear once a week, every week, then it's intentional, right? And so sometimes we just need the reminder, but what happens is that he says, you are full of your own whisperings and vain conceits. So it's your vanity that, that leads you to think, okay, why am I hearing this again? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know, it's just like, you know, when the parent is telling the 15-year-old child, do this, that, you know, don't do this, because that will happen, and the child's like, yeah, I know, right? And part of it is that the child is exercising some vanity uh, against the parents. But deeper than the vanity here is, is you are full of illusion, so and greed, yeah. Is it is it more so like you're trying to you're not learning yeah. to improve yourself. Exactly. But you're learning to reach a certain status. Yeah, or you're learning you what you're actually learning is how to just resist. Right. You know. And so like they're saying we've already heard plenty of this. Our hearts are full of such words. And the response is God forbid that you should be full of them. Yeah. And it's almost like uh, uh, sarcastic, right? That you actually want to be full of those words. Right, if you were full of this, then you it it would be meaningful to yeah. you, or like it would uh, you would achieve what you're aiming, what mm-hmm. you're quote unquote saying you want to achieve. Yeah, right. exactly. And so at one layer, it's their their own worldly response, okay. And so what's inside their response? So we said that the teacher's words has built in uh, the teachers expressing value, you know, to the student that you are of value. Yeah. You are of value of my time. Okay? Now, when the student is speaking in this way, we've already heard all this, we're full of all this, then what's inside what, this, what the student is saying? At one level, 
just these whisperings, these ideas, and, and vanity. And so those whisperings could come from shaitan. Or, you know, like some people get lost in their thoughts, like those, their thoughts will start run away, running uh, away from them. And they will think that that's just truth, right? You know, like they'll think, okay, I've already heard this before. Why am I hearing this again? And they just go deeper and deeper, and they'll say this obnoxious line. But what's deeper than that? Just illusion and greed, okay? So greed for what would be kind of like what you're saying. They want some other type of status, okay? And so they're not hearing what will help them get their status, right? So sometimes I'll have a student who will come for an assignment. I'll say, okay, do this assignment. And they'll say, well, it's going to be the next assignment after that. I go, I'm not going to tell you until you do this assignment. Some students don't come back. Other students, you know, mashallah, will let you go through and do the assignment, come back, you know, months later and say, okay, I did such and such, now I'm ready for whatever's next, right? But deeper than all that, it says you are full of cursing. And so think about the, the, the personality of someone who's cursing. How would you describe that? Someone who's just cursing. How do I describe myself? Um, <laughs> like a sailor? <laughs> But, okay, so the sailor, like, when a sailor curses, what is the sailor cursing for? Oh, someone, so why? Oh, man, you always ask the deeper question. Yes, exactly, mashallah. There's always a deeper question in the question. No, so, <coughs> think of it a few ways. Like a complaint? So, sometimes it's a complaint, yeah. right? Sometimes it's an exercise of power, right? Sometimes it's an exercise of defiance, okay? And, and all of those are examples of someone who's using a wrong technique to express their sentiment. And so that is still the, the internally, deep down inside, their default position becomes repulsion. Because that's exactly what's happening with this person. The saint is giving something beneficial, and they're pushing back. Right? I don't want this. They're coming to learn. Because yeah. remember, that's the context here. Yeah. And then they're saying, no, I don't want that. And so deep inside, their default disposition is repulsion, which means this person probably has a certain amount of self-loathing too, mm. right? Uh, because even they're not appreciating their own value and such. And so that is often one of the biggest obstacles for the student to learn. It's how much self-loathing do they have? And it manifests um, by way of cursing. And think of cursing as, as literally... To express your sentiment, you're doing the exact wrong way, right? And then higher than that, and then that feeds into a type of greed for dunya, and all of that feeds into to vanity. So it seems even like vanity, but deep in the vanity, it's actually self-loathing. Mm -hmm. So think about that. Vanity is a type of self-loathing, right? It's a type of narcissism. I mean, vanity is narcissism, but self-loathing is a type of narcissism. Cool. Okay, let's continue. If only they were empty. If only they were empty of such ravings, then they would be open to receive these words. But they are not open to receive them. God has set a seal upon their ears and eyes and hearts. Their eyes see things opposite of what they are. They hear wisdom as gibberish and raving. Their hearts have been transformed into a home of self-love and vanity. A winter's tangle of dark shapes and pride has possessed them. Their hearts are hardened with ice and frost. So, in other language, I mean, it's the same point that they are full of self-love. So, again, self-loathing is a type of self-love. How is, how is self-loathing a type of narcissism or self-love? Hmm. <laughs> like, As you the only this student in the room, <laughs> I think you're asking me this question. Yes, you are correct. Uh, well, I, I mean, it's because it's, it's almost narcissistic in a sense that, like, you're putting yourself at the center. Yeah. 
right? But I guess even deeper than that, it's a form of like ingratitude, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like uh, it's very easy, you know, I think for a lot of people to feel sorry for themselves, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. um, it's the easy way out. Like I mean, even for me, there's so many times where I have self-loathed or mm -hmm. like I've been, you know, just like, yeah, I'm horrible. And, but you don't, it, it's it's an escape because you don't you like absolve yourself of responsibility as well uh, to like to yeah. change that mm -hmm. yeah. and uh, it's not I don't know it's not productive and mm -hmm. yeah all these points and it's like oh you know it it's saying I it's almost saying I don't have to change my flaws because I'm so horrible mm -hmm. right and I'm this is who I am and I'll never be mm -hmm. be better mm -hmm. but you're you're just kind of hiding behind that, yeah. right? And you're going to say, well, I'm not going to try to make, I'm not going to open myself up to, like, mm -hmm. to change anything. Yeah, I mean, all of those uh, together. And one of the central points that binds all those together is what is narcissism? It's excessive focus on yourself. And what is self-loathing? It's excessive focus on yourself. And the difference is that narcissism is giving yourself, an inf or common narcissism vanity is giving yourself a, uh, uh, and uh, uh, what's the word? An inflated sense of yourself in a positive direction. Self-loathing is giving an inflated sense of yourself in a negative direction, but it's still excessive focus on yourself. And self-loathing is a type of ingratitude because you are not being grateful for everything that is part of you, everything that is inside of you. And then it has all these other consequences. And what are, what are we? What is being taught here? And again, remember the context is that you have, this is a student who is coming to the teacher, basically saying, train me. And when the teacher's trying to train, the student's saying, no, I don't want that, right? And so uh, it's saying that they are getting sealed off. So, uh, this is a condition that is very hard to get out of, right? This, because uh, once, you, once you develop this disposition of self-loathing, then it, that informs your whole theology, that informs how you look at everything, mm. right? And so here it's saying their hearts are hardened with ice and frost. So you see almost God is, is uh, in that same sort of, through that lens. Yeah, potentially, right? As something negative, or as God hates you, God abandons you, all yeah. that. Now, where does the self-loathing come from? Uh, sometimes it comes from a lack of nurturing by the parents, right? Uh, sometimes it's the result of choices that a person makes. Or it's a choice that a person makes in response to how things play out in their lives. But uh, it is a very hard, hard thing to break out of. Is uh, sort of on the other end of this, yeah. uh, just talking about God, like, not to say God abandons you, but I guess it's also, I feel like it's a big part of our tradition, uh, like, that, or there's a lot of points where people might feel like, not that, or people might feel like God abandoned them, or they might not feel... God present, mm -hmm. and like I feel like Allah is always telling us in the Quran, like you know, uh, I'm near, or like mm -hmm. you know, we were never absent. Or, yeah, like, we're not, you know, like you, you're not abandoned, mm -hmm. right? But I guess it's also speaking that's a real feeling. Yeah, but like you have to constantly be reminded that mm -hmm. like, even though you might feel that disconnect, yeah, it God's still present, mm -hmm. but you have to like, you still have to navigate through those dark parts. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Think about how many times Allah says over and over again in the Quran that he's merciful, that he's forgiving. And so maybe we need to hear it over and over again, but at some point you're the one who has to make the choice to accept it, embrace it, embody it, internalize it. 
uh, to navigate everything. Okay, uh, let's stop right here. And I think my, my next appointment should be starting in just a moment. So we'll start next time at the very top of page 49. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk wa akhri da'wana anilhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.